Welcome to Consumed, the podcast that stokes conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. I'm Jamie Lewis, and this 18th season, I speak with folks across California, from Santa Barbara to the Bay Area, covering subjects as varied as lab-grown meat and artificial intelligence, food writing and pizza, hot vegan takeout, Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir, carbon steel skillets, closing the loop on food systems, happy meals, charcuterie, agritourism, and much more. I hope you get to hear all of it. Thanks for listening. Before we jump in, I want to share a few words about our sponsors. Casa du Metz is a boutique winery in Los Alamos, celebrating its 12th year in this historic one-horse town. Their attention and motivation is captured by creating aromatic fresh wines that defy expectation. With three brands, Casa du Metz, Clementine Carter, and The Feminist Party, their goal is to highlight the beauty and bounty of Santa Barbara wine country. They have a particular sweet spot for Rhone variety wines sourced from Cool Climate Vineyard Partners in the Santa Rita Hills. Join them for their popular weekly speaker series, monthly wine club vineyard tours, Malibu sessions, and a unique tasting experience where you choose your own wine adventure. Join the discovery with Casa du Metz and their sister business, Babby's Beer Emporium, next door to explore quirky craft beers and bubbles while enjoying dumplings and spicy wings from Dim Sama. 2023 marks their 19th vintage, and they want to celebrate with you. Visit casadumetz.com. For more information. Consumed is sponsored by Mid-State Containers Cargo Storage Containers and Refrigerated Shipping Containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how Mid-State Containers could change your life, but the truth is many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use Mid-State for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods for private collections and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Mid-State Containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root cellars. My guest from Season 10, Krista Flieger, from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her Mid-State Container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a mid-state container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Okay, on to the episode. Here's one of the great benefits of having a podcast. At any time, you have a perfectly acceptable excuse to ask someone over to chat. And that's exactly what I did here. Dr. Deb Donig is Assistant Professor of English Literature at Cal Poly and a lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Information in the Master's in Data Science program. She is the co-founder of the Cal Poly Ethical Technology Initiative and the host of Technically Human a podcast where she talks with major thinkers, writers, and industry-leading technologists about the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. 
So what does this have to do with food, you ask? Well, Professor Donig's specialty is the intersection of ethics and technology, and she has a deep and abiding interest in the concept of so-called clean meat, or lab-grown meat. She also has the philosophical chops to think critically about what this kind of technology could mean for humanity. And as you'll hear in this interview, I marveled at her critical thinking prowess and ability to hold multiple truths at once. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Deb Donig, recorded at her home in Oakland, California. The way I got to know you um, virtually is I heard you on a conversation with a reluctant therapist, which is put out through KCBX in San Luis Obispo. And like I was telling you before we started rolling, I was driving from Slow to Paso. I was actually paying for some windows that we're getting for our remodel. And I had to drive up there with a check. And I happened to turn it on right as you were coming on. And from that point all the way up to Paso, I like ran into the window place to give them the check so that I could keep listening to you, got back into the car and rode all the way home. (laughs) And I was so compelled by your expertise in, I mean, a number of different fields. I don't even know how I would, how would you crystallize what you are an an expert at? Uh, well, I want to caveat this by saying that I'm not sure that I consider myself to be an, an expert in any one thing, um, but I will share a little bit about my training and, and how I got to the areas that um, I most uh, I spend most of my time on. Mm-hmm. Um, by training, I'm a professor of English literature, right? And so, a question that I get asked all the time is, "How is it that a professor of English literature is talking, as I uh, talk quite frequently, about um, the intersection of ethics and technology?" Mm-hmm. and I come out of a background in human rights. Uh, I wrote my doctorate on human uh, rights and human rights in the 20th century, most specifically. And when I got to the 21st century, I I realized that I couldn't talk about human rights without also talking about technological production, whether we're talking about the uh, possibility that a social media company may have mobilized a genocide in Myanmar, whether we're talking about questions of First Amendment rights and and free speech on social media platforms, or whether we're talking um, about the... Uh, social fabric and the democratic nature of our society itself and the relationship between that and uh, digital technologies Mm -hmm. that may be uh, interfering with or um, transforming the nature of of that social fabric. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started to think about the relationship between human rights, ethics, and technology. And as I come out of a background in English literature, one of the kind of formative thoughts that I've always had is that we we, um, can't build anything unless we can first imagine it. Mm-hmm. So we have to imagine before we build. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to think about how we imagine. How do we project a future? How do we think about the the idea of what a future might uh, want to look like or mm-hmm. what we would want a future to look like versus um, the things that we don't want to see come into being? We call the first of the two utopia, the second of mm. two dystopia. dystopia. And I, I wanted to understand how we get from imagining to building, what kind of world we imagine when we say that we want to build a better world, are our technological projects and and products actually helping us Mm. to uh, create that kind of world? Um, And what do we really define as the good? And how is that idea of the good um, based in uh, and and mobilizing things like market projections, um, things like uh, technological forecasting, and indeed some of the really critical issues in the tech uh, industry right now, such as algorithms. What algorithms Mm. do is they take data from 
from the past. Uh, they take information generated by a past set of circumstances, and then they uh, use that data to learn and then to uh, automate certain behaviors mm-hmm. and certain optimizations into the future. Mm-hmm. And so uh, coming from a background and really thinking about futures and future ideals and future ideal of human rights, I really wanted to understand that. Yeah. Okay. So walk me through the English literature thing to the human rights thing. <laughs> how did those, sure. how did that, how did one beget the other? Oh gosh. Well, without wanting to get overly technical about it, um, I came into graduate school with a real interest in human rights. And what I really wanted to understand is how it is that an imagination of human rights really becomes um, a set of political circumstances mm. in 1945. That's in the wake of the Nazi atrocities. Mm-hmm. And, um, how a kind of discourse of human rights really um, that tried to evidence and to to show the reality of, of human rights ended up getting mobilized by things we typically think of as literary technologies, things like metaphor, analogy, mm-hmm. simile, mm-hmm. and how legal circumstances and uh, human rights projects were oftentimes um, taking uh, up questions of, of fictions themselves mm-hmm. and uh, what we call in literature figurations, the idea of... Um, uh, comparisons. This is, a, um, remember, a moment where uh, the entire global community is coming together to think about a shared set of circumstances and mm-hmm, understanding of human mm-hmm. rights. And so the way that we think about our circumstances vis-a-vis a set of circumstances from another group of people in another part of the world is we try and say something like that group of people or those entities over there are something like us. So notice mm-hmm. I use the word like. Mm-hmm. Like is what we call a term of analogy. Mm-hmm. We say like or as to show a relationship or demonstrate a relationship of of similitude between the two. Mm -hmm. And so our ability as uh, a globalized community to think about something like human rights, the idea that human lives are human lives anywhere and everywhere, Mm -hmm. is premised on the idea that we can think of ourselves like we think of Mm -hmm. another group of people, Mm -hmm. that they over there, that those we imagine suffering over there are somewhat like us. Um, And so what I started to see in human rights discourse and and legal projects was that kind of terminology of similitude or analogy really uh, ending up becoming a a prominent way in which the uh, international community started to imagine and understand itself as a community that would protect and idealize human rights. That also sounds like progress in terms of empathy and uh, respect where it's not as tribal, perhaps it's more inclusive and, and thinking about, I I think also probably travel, international Mm -hmm. travel Mm -hmm. in concert with the human rights awareness that came Mm -hmm. about after Mm -hmm. World War II. Mm -hmm. You know, when we visit other cultures, we suddenly have this sense of of being one small part of something much bigger. um, And that that's a good move for humanity. You you mentioned the word, the two words, the good, which Mm -hmm. I remember you saying Mm -hmm. on the last podcast. And I think if I could have called in and asked a question about that, it would have been, how do you, not you, but how does humanity define the good? Because Mm. if you ask different people, sure. They may have, they would definitely have varying answers. Well, well, let me start off with just a a very basic axiomatic claim, which is that I'm a moral realist. Hmm. Um, What moral realism says in contrast to something like moral relativism is that there really are better and worse answers to moral questions. Mm. Moral relativism says that every culture, every individual has their own definition of good or bad and right or wrong. Who Mm -hmm. are we outside of that culture to say whether or not that definition is accurate um, or whether or not there's a better and a worse definition of of Mm -hmm. right or wrong? Aren't all cultural practices 
just or aren't all cultural practices in some way um, uh, just, you know, people's opinions. Yeah. Uh, and I, I reject that idea. So I actually think that there are better and worse answers to moral questions. Um, and most, by the way, f- uh, serious philosophical thinkers uh, this day and age uh, also believe that. And let me just say... Really? Like, I, Do you know, Because I feel like yeah. you're saying something that... I've, you're taking a position mm-hmm. on it, first of all, mm-hmm. which is uh, admirable. And thank yeah. you. Because <laughs> there are a lot of people who maybe wouldn't even jump through that hoop, especially in academia. Look, I think we're living in a period of time where people are very cautious about saying that a culture is wrong for doing something because we're coming out of a period where we're recognizing and maybe um, very conscious of maybe a a kind of Western imperialism or Mm -hmm, Western imperialist mm -hmm. culture. But I think that when there's something actually at stake, when the people who went out to protest um, uh, Black Lives Matter, right, went to protest in... um, uh, service of uh, elevating the idea that Black Lives Matters. They weren't saying Black Lives Matters and equality matters, and that's just my opinion. Mm. What they were actually saying, I mm. think, mm-hmm. is that there is a better and a worse moral uh, answer to the moral question: um, Should we uh, treat people under the law equally, or yeah. should we allow extrajudicial executions by cops mm. um, that is disproportionately based in one race? And I think their answer to that is no. No. If yeah. we uh, as a culture, I think, um, were to uh, look at a period of time in American history where there was slavery and a period of time where we rejected slavery, mm-hmm. I think most people, even people who sometimes say, you know, cultures are allowed to do whatever they want, and there's no better or worse answer to the moral questions, would say a culture that allows slavery is a worse culture mm-hmm. than a culture that does not allow slavery. Mm-hmm. A culture that allows for the torturing of babies is a worse culture than a culture that mm-hmm. does not allow for the torturing of babies. A culture that uh, uh, proceeds along a genocidal campaign against the Jews is a worse culture mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. a culture that does not do that. So I think when there's something actually at stake for us, mm-hmm. we, we kind of recognize that we allow for um, a difference uh, between good moral answers and bad moral answers. And we don't just think that it's people's opinion, people have the right to decide. Sure, okay, right? yep. So when I talk about the nature of the good, I caveat that with saying, I don't know what the good is, mm, mm-hmm. definitely. And I don't think that that's a question that we as human beings can answer ever, ultimately. But I do think that there are better and worse answers to moral questions. Mm. And I think that um, the idea of the good is it what I call an indefinite shape. Meaning that we know what a better and a worse answer is. I think we're moving as a culture forward in in identifying and knowing that more fully, but we can't ever know it ultimately. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. don't know that question ultimately. It's an open concept, meaning that we have a sense of what it is. We have some terms that help us to identify what we think the good might be, but we don't ultimately know it Uh, in a definitive way. And in fact, I think that cultures that try to say that they and they alone have Mm, all of the mm -hmm. answers to moral questions tend to be uh, cultures that end up with a kind of fascistic Mm -hmm. or a kind of uh, deeply totalitarian. They're at risk of that for sure. Right. Right. But I don't think that the extreme either uh, people um, uh, are entitled to their opinion about moral Mm. uh, questions or the other extreme, um, there is an absolute answer and I and I alone have it, um, are reasonable. And and it's not an either or. There's Mm -hmm. a space in between where I think we can think 
in considerate, um, thoughtful, progressive ways about what the nature of the good is and try to answer those questions, mm-hmm. knowing that we might never know them ultimately, but that we can move the culture toward better answers. And in so doing, pursue truth and the good, even if it doesn't benefit us right. personally. Right. I mean, that's really where it comes Right. The rubber meets the road. There. And and in fact, if you talk to people who do good, it very infrequently benefits them personally. Mm-hmm. Mother Teresa did not benefit Mm-mm. personally from making the extraordinary moral sacrifices that yeah. she made. Um, I know oftentimes from my own uh, position, my own experience, that sometimes I do the good and it actually requires a great amount of sacrifice yeah. and I don't benefit from it. Um, yeah. And I watch people who do bad things uh, benefit from it greatly. So, mm-hmm. so I don't think that there's a strong correlation between doing the good and personal sacrifice satisfaction. I do think that in the kind of philosophical tradition from which I draw, um, the idea of moving uh, toward the good is a kind of duty. In Mm. philosophical terms, we call this deontological. Deo means duty. Mm. Um, And so it's a a form of duty-bound ethics. This is something that, you know, philosophical thinkers uh, really kind of um, peaking with Immanuel Kant Mm -hmm. in... uh, the um, 18th century really like understood that we have certain duties, that those duties are not necessarily pleasurable, mm-hmm. um, but they bring us further toward the ends of a kind of uh, better good. And in that fulfillment of those duties, we get a kind of satisfaction or happiness. And I really like that you say that we're, uh, that we're, our culture and our our planet is moving closer to the good rather than, I mean, there are a lot of people mm-hmm. who would say the sky is falling. Mm-hmm. Everything's going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know Steven Pinker? Sure. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of uh-huh. is when he talks about, no, you know, actually mm-hmm. if you look in retrospect, we're doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a good um, paraphrase yeah, of what you're saying? I think, I think I agree with Steven Pinker on a philosophical level. Mm-hmm. I think philosophically our culture has moved forward. You know, at a certain period of time, um, we enslaved other human beings. Right. In a certain point in time, we didn't believe in human rights. In or certain, killed indigenous people killed to indigenous have what we wanted. Yeah. Or killed prisoners of war, mm-hmm. um, didn't protect civilians in the context of war. Mm. Now we're in a period of time where we actually think that War is not uh, the way that countries should go about, you know, settling differences, um, that we should protect human rights. Uh, Genocide um, in the context of somebody like Genghis Khan was something that was celebrated, right? If you were Genghis Khan and you wiped out another group of people, you celebrated. All I do is win. We are the people who wipe out X. (laughs) Um, Now it's something that still happens, but the people who do it have to do it in secret. They're ashamed Mm, of it, right? mm -hmm. Um, This tells us something about our moral progress. Now, whether or not our moral progress is consistent with um, the experience of actual human beings and whether or not things like climate change, environmental Mm -hmm, disaster, mm -hmm. uh, economic um, uh, maldistributions or inequalities are going to uh, become catastrophic, that's a different question. Mm -hmm. But philosophically, I have no question that there is a kind of progression toward really thinking about and really... um, helping politically come into uh, being that Mm. kind of um, progressive idea. Yeah. Okay. So anybody listening is probably like, why aren't we talking about food? (laughs) And that, but that comes into this for sure. So you told me, um, and I'm not quoting you exactly, but you told me when we emailed back and forth that you were very interested Mm -hmm. in lab grown meat. Sure. Because that is part and parcel of a discussion about, well, first of all, the future. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
taking a sort of, um, I mean, I'm thinking about with AI scraping the internet to come up with a body that can be predictive of the future or predictive of, oh gosh, now I'm getting into sentience and I don't mean to, but how does lab grown meat? How does your interest in that reflect your deeper interest in, let's just call it the future? Well, it's really kind of the perfect triangulation of my interest in human rights and Mm. my interest in technological production and the idea of progression toward the idea of the good. You know, we were talking earlier about the uh, idea of empathy. Mm. The technology of empathy is really the technology of similitude. It really Mm -hmm. is the ability to say, you over there are somebody like me. Mm -hmm. And if I were experiencing that kind of pain, it would be devastating for me. And therefore, I want to protect you from being... uh, in that position, mm-hmm. right? The idea of a global human rights is the idea, as I said, that human lives are human lives anywhere and everywhere, mm-hmm. that you over there are entitled to the same kind of protections than, as I over here am entitled to. And uh, for me, that technology of empathy that allows us to uh, establish and, and really globalize the idea of human rights um, raises questions about what the boundaries are that cause us maybe to do some mental gymnastics to the point where we uh, decide that those um, creatures who may clearly be sentient, mm-hmm. um, who clearly uh, have some qualities that are like us, who, mm-hmm. who me, experience mind, fear fear and yeah. pain and, yeah. and who would, in my mind at least, prefer not to die, mm-hmm. are uh, somehow uh, not eligible for that same kind of consideration. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the the real questions of the technology of empathy that I'm talking about when I talk about my interest in human rights and coming out uh, with a literary background in um, an interest in thinking about uh, similitudes and analogies mm-hmm. um, blends very well with a new emerging technology that I think philosophically oftentimes comes out of the same place and I think has the potential to um, eliminate a form of cruelty that mm. my background in human rights for me makes makes very difficult uh, mm. to stomach in this world. Yeah. Okay. So, and and we said before we started rolling that you are vegan, and I always like. I mean, it's so easy in academia mm-hmm. to separate the personal from the, you know, I I, I taught at Cal Poly mm-hmm. in journalism, and it's mm-hmm. so easy to discuss things separate from my own experience mm-hmm. and what the way that I live day to day. But the fact that you're vegan now, I'm getting, I'm starting to understand where that interest in lab-grown meat also can come from for you personally, where it stems yeah. from, or maybe one one informed the other. Well. Um- let me let me take you back a little bit. Uh, this is an audio medium, so your listeners won't see that. Right over, sitting over on the couch is uh, <laughs> my dog. Um, her name is Ella. Mm-hmm. Her full name is actually Elizabeth Costello, and um, <laughs> that name is a name. Uh, that I draw from uh, what to me is one of the most uh, important books um, about the technology of empathy, a book by the South African author J.M. Kotsea mm. called Elizabeth Costello, in which he includes a short novella called The Lives of Animals. And uh, Kotsea is a Nobel Prize winner. Um, th- he's a Booker uh, Award winner, which mm. is the highest kind of achievement you can get as a fiction writer. Um, and in 1999, he was asked by Princeton University to travel. He's, he's from South Africa at the time he was living in Australia, um, from Australia to uh, the East Coast of the United States in order to give a lecture. Mm. And he agrees to this. The, the Tanner Lecture in the Humanities is a very prestigious lecture. It's a lecture that has been given by Toonan Morrison, by mm. Peter Singer, by really well-established 
philosophers and thinkers and writers uh, in the humanities. He travels to Princeton University and gets up on the uh, stage in front of the audience of Princeton um, scholars and and students and professors and uh, community members who are there. Instead of giving a lecture, he starts to read a novel. And in the novel... Mm. uh, a uh, very famous writer from the Southern Hemisphere named Elizabeth Costello has been invited by a fictionalized prestigious university on the East Coast to give a lecture in the humanities. <laughs> right? You can see Thinly veiled. the kinds yeah. of analogies that he's setting mm-hmm. up there. And instead of talking about the humanities, she starts to talk about what she metaphorically calls her hobby horse, the idea of the human um, cruelty toward non-human animals. Mm-hmm. I say human animals and non-human animals um, because, of course, human beings are animals. Right. And... Um, uh, she starts talking about this kind of cruelty. And in the middle she, of this lecture, at a kind of crisis point in the novel, she says, you know, there was a period of time where human beings made a cognitive decision to disavow the humanity of another group of people. They looked away. They mm-hmm. said, those group of people are unlike us, mm-hmm. and therefore we can do whatever we want to them. She's talking, of course, about the Nazi atrocities mm-hmm. of the Holocaust. And she says, you know, the formative statement that came out of the Holocaust is the Nazis led the Jews to the slaughter like sheep. Mm-hmm, she, mm-hmm. Uh, Jews went like sheep to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. She said, we find that idea so abhorrent and so grotesque mm-hmm. uh, that it turns our stomach. But what if we were to think of that metaphor backwards? What if we lead sheep like Jews to the slaughter? Oh my gosh, um, yeah. That metaphor that makes the uh, Nazi atrocities so grotesque is something that we... Uh, that you, living in Princeton, New Jersey, with an abattoir probably 20 miles from here, Mm -hmm. um, turn your eyes from. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I'm Jewish. I lost family in the Holocaust. Mm. So for me, that metaphor was just so jarring, Mm -hmm. this idea that um, we somehow have had the intellectual capacity to disavow a form of suffering or to justify it by saying that those group of uh, sheep Mm. or cows uh, or turkeys... Mm -hmm. um, do not have uh, speech and therefore they mm-hmm. are um, not eligible for our empathy or maybe they, their brains are not quite formed as ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can start to, when I look at that, um, see the kinds of you know, intellectual work that we do in order to uh, yes. avoid yes. Um, that kind of empathy. And for me, you know, I have mixed feelings on things like, should we use non-human animals for testing? Um, mm. For medical mm-hmm. testing, should uh, should um, we provide uh, non-human animals with the kinds of legal protections that we uh, provide mm-hmm. for human mm-hmm. animals? But to me, the idea of eating um, is tied to the idea of gustatory pleasure. Yeah. I'm sh- certain that some people uh, in your, the members of your audience eat meat uh, because they uh, need a nutritional requirement. But mm-hmm. I think that for most of us, meat eating is based in a gustatory form of yeah. pleasure. Yeah. And I could not justify um, my pleasure at the expense of that mm. kind of pain. And, you know, I, I'm I'm actually, I, I wouldn't call myself a foodie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to be a uh, We hate a that word anyway. That's a horrible <laughs> we word. We were watching the menu last night. I asked Sam oh to my turn it gosh. off. Oh my gosh. You asked him to turn it off? <laughs> turn it off. Because it's too intense? Too intense for me. I, oh my I Gosh, that movie. I thought I was going to start crying or I don't know. It was really intense. So, you know, I wouldn't call myself a foodie, um, but I do recognize that food is not simply a nutritional requirement Mm -hmm. entity. Um, We eat because 
uh, we we want to feel good. We eat because we want to taste something good. Yeah. Um, we eat because uh, we want to make a meal and share a meal with our lover and mm-hmm. somebody who we want to spend time with. And the food uh, is, you know, we use the term breaking bread to um, signal the idea of coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, eating and communal eating is an incredibly important part of bonding. We eat because our grandmother who fled the country that mm-hmm. she um, uh, had to flee on the you know, uh, crucible of her life, um, brought, uh, to the United States where she, you know, had to leave all of her material beings behind. And the one thing she mm-hmm. could bring with her was, uh, the recipes mm-hmm. and she uses the, uh, recipe to recreate in a sense the material surroundings that she lost and so we eat for memory food is political food is cultural food is memory food is social there are so many different dimensions to it but one thing that food i think prominently is and increasingly so is ethical Mm, um we uh we i think um i well let me take a step back. Mm. Um, as a vegan, you find it sometimes uh, hard to get invited to dinner parties um, oh, because that's very because sad. <laughs> you know people don't want to make a special meal. Um, mm. And I think the kind of joke about vegans is that uh, how do you know if somebody's vegan? Mm. They'll tell you, right? Um, but that's actually <laughs> not what I find. What I find mm. is that when you say no to a number of dishes, people will ask why. And when you say that you're saying no because you don't eat a number of ingredients in the dishes, um, people will ask you about it. And they'll want to ask questions as to why. Mm -hmm. And it gets to a certain point when if I am answering those questions honestly, the other people around the table feel implicated, right? Mm. Because food is ethical. We're asking real questions about life and death when we talk about what we eat. Mm. And so I think that... um, Many people want to avoid thinking about it and talking about it uh, because um, these are deep ethical questions and they are also questions in which people feel themselves implicated. For sure. And the fact that we consume it, I mean, like anything, it becomes politicized because Mm -hmm. it is upon a token by which to control or, uh, you know, to incentivize Mm -hmm. or it's just, it's right in there. Right. It's right in there. Right. You were you always vegan? Did you grow up that way? No, uh, I grew up in a meat eating family. Yeah, um, I ate meat uh, probably for the first about nineteen years of my life. Um, became vegetarian for a while. Uh, I went back to eating meat for a while, um, and then in graduate school, you know, I'm a person who takes ideas very seriously. Yes, yeah. The most important things. Um, in my life for me are my ideas and my mm-hmm. values. I try to live my life in service of those values in a way that's consistent with them. And I found it increasingly difficult to be genuine about my values and my ideas when my uh, daily habits, I mean, eating is something that we do at least three times a day, yeah. were inconsistent with that. And this is by no means a uh, a doctrine of living one's life as a political project. Mm. I think that there are limitations to doing that. I may feel one way philosophically about public school, and I may also see before me my child who is better served in a private school, right? And I wouldn't say sacrifice um, the the, uh, life, the material, um, interpersonal life in front of you in service of those values, but I found it very difficult uh, to have um, something as intimate as what goes in my body, Mm -hmm. um, be inconsistent with certain values and to have to confront that on a three times a day scale. And it was asking, it was begging for you to pay attention to it. It sounds like, you know, those kinds of things like the, 
you believe in public school and then you put your own child in private school. I mean, that kind of stuff comes up when it wants to be critical to you. So it sounds like this came up for you at a time when it it wanted to be known. It wanted to be pondered. Sure. And, you know, when I first became vegan in 2009, um, it was much more difficult than it is now. Mm, Uh, In 2009, I was in Los Angeles. And, you know, Los Angeles is notoriously a place that will cater to whatever (laughs) kind of idiosyncratic diet Mm -hmm. um, you want to have. Uh, But even then, there were fewer options than there are now for vegans. And, you know, to go back to, I think, the uh, uh, crucial topic for today, my vision and I think um, my calculations about what the future holds, looking at the present and looking at what has changed in the environment uh, of eating and the landscape of food from 2009 Mm -hmm. to present, suggests to me that uh, being a vegan in um, 2023 probably is going to become easier in 2024 yes. and 2025. Certainly, I think it's much easier than it is in, than it was in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trends and the food trends. And you know, there's also, I think, some political questions that um, we need to address as a culture about our food systems. Mm. Food systems yes. are tied to our politics. They're tied to our environment. Yeah. Um, certainly, in this particular moment, uh, we have real environmental questions to mm-hmm. ask about our food systems as well. And I think moving forward, um, every single incentive is on the table to move people toward a plant-based diet. I think it's becoming a, an idea and a concept and a practice that's much more compelling mm. um, and uh, easy to follow for many people. Uh, you look around in Berkeley, you know, I think that there are four vegan taco places. Oh, what? sure. It, that was not the case um, a year ago. So. Yes. <laughs> but that being that being said, Berkeley, I mean, is completely at the forefront of that sort mm-hmm. of thing. There's a lot of very conscious and rubber to the road kinds of folks here. And I yes. and there's something I love about that. Right. But it's not just Berkeley. So for example, I have an interlocutor in uh, in Singapore. Oh. Um, Singapore, uh, just for your audience, is the first uh, country to uh, approve the sale of lab-grown meat. And that has been really? commercially available for, um, I think, two years now in Singapore. My interlocutor in Singapore is involved with the Chinese market for meat. And for your listeners, um, maybe uh, they're familiar with the um, the uh, population trends in China, which is toward the uh, enlargement of the middle class. Yeah. And in China, historically, um, the upper class has eaten meat. The lower classes have been much more mm. um, plant-based, yes. vegetable plants. rice, noodles. But what yeah. you're seeing is the um, uh, emergence of a more Western form of uh, dietary preferences and consuming habits. And you're seeing a rise of a group of people who have the means mm-hmm. to consume meat. Um, China's calculations is that they will not have the supply for that kind of demand mm. in the next 10 years. China is devoting something like uh, 20% of its KPI toward the, the um, development of technologies toward lab-grown meat. Right? Wow. This is not Berkeley. Wow. No, this, no. This, this is mainland China. Yes. Um, we're also looking, I think, at an environment that is quickly ch- uh, requiring us to change our consuming habits. So uh, the United Nations about two years ago put out a projection of where it thinks the next pandemic is likely to come from. Mm. Um, number one was the uh, clearing of wild um, wildlife habitats mm-hmm. for uh, grazing land, um, and so the uh, the transmission of um, viruses from wildlife to 
uh, livestock to human beings. Number two, because they're closer, because because, because they're of coming the, into contact. Yes. Okay. Number two was mm. the development of viruses such as swine flu, bird yes. flu um, from industrial farming. Yeah. Um, and and number three was the bushmeat trade. So reasons number one, two, and three from the United Nations of the next pandemic are tied to our industrial farming practices. What is the bushmeat trade? The bushmeat trade is, for example, the uh, Wuhan wet market, ah, where the okay. jump of the COVID-19 mm-hmm. um, virus transferred, some people say, from a bat, pangolin, yeah. um, to a human being. Yeah. Okay. So reasons one, one, two, and three. I mean, that's pretty compelling. If you look at swine flu and bird flu, these kinds of diseases come up from our livestock, yeah. not in extraordinary conditions, but under the very basic practices and premises of, uh, of uh, factory farming. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the... Um, the interest in uh, averting another pandemic, yeah. um, certainly the questions that come up around climate change. I know that there's some controversy that you mentioned among mm. your listenership around uh, whether or not grazing um, land and the clearing of land mm-hmm. uh, and the kinds of methane productions and the kinds of um, transportation uh, questions mm-hmm. uh, of, of moving around and, and the growth of corn and all of the kind of feed that is required for right. um, grazing livestock. Uh, whether that is um, actually contributing to climate change. Mm-hmm. Certainly climate scientists believe that this is the case. Yeah. Uh, Pat Brown, for example, who started Impossible uh, Meat, uh, was a climate scientist at uh, Stanford University. Oh, and he know. actually left Stanford University to start Impossible Burger because in his calculations and research, he realized that the uh, most uh, um, plausible way to avert climate change was to stop the uh, practices of industrial farming. I mean, that's what we hear. So, you know, and he's, even as you're talking that's why about, I started it. yeah, when you're talking about how uh, you know we have to feed animals, so we grow the corn, mm-hmm. soybeans. I mean, think about that's all subsidized, right? So we have this broken system. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that. I think farmers, ranchers, I think we can all agree that the system is broken, mm-hmm. really, and, and folks in Washington, too. Sure. Um, but yes, that's very compelling reasons one, two, and three all have something to do with agriculture um, and the growth, you know, the, the um, outsized growth of mm-hmm. agriculture because of population also. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another issue that I don't think gets talked about enough, but... I, it made me think about how we often talk about the human race became civilized when mm-hmm. it was able to feed itself with, through the act of agriculture, agri- but not mm-hmm. just agriculture, like, uh, well, husbandry, yes, but the ability to plant seeds, cultivate plants, mm-hmm. harvest them, and then manipulate the earth in such a way that it can continue to do that fruitfully. Mm-hmm. That is how we became able to, that's how our brains grew. That's how our uh, ability to communicate. It's, it's all part and parcel of that. It's interesting to me that now that's actually becoming the thing that could take us out. Well, let's, let's separate two things. Um, there are some people in my camp, uh, and by my camp, I mean professors in the humanities in particular, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, very uh, tend toward um, more kind of a liberal, uh, oh, sure. left wing yeah. um, uh, kind of thought patterns. Um, there are some among them that say that we were better off when we were, you know, um, grazing, uh, moving tribes. 
Um, that's not my position. I think that all of the things that you say are true. I think that the idea of civilization as we understand it is premised if we take strip take all the political strippings of it away right it's a group of people on a land who somehow have to live together and set up different kinds of institutions in order to do so so say that you're a group of people uh and suddenly you know you're you're in one place you have to set up uh, a sewage system people can't just mm-hmm. go to the bathroom wherever mm-hmm. and then you have to set up some form of policing so that you know you have some set of laws and some um, ways of enforcement so that there is a, a civil uh, procedure to protect people from a tendency to want want to manipulate or to mm-hmm. maybe take advantage yeah. of other people. And then you say, well, we have a group of people here and we're, we're having babies and maybe the babies need some form of education so that they can understand our civilization. So you build a school. And now maybe you don't have just one tribe of people, but you have a, what we call multi-ethnic society. And so now you have to figure out how to get along, right? And so you have to set up institutions to be able to do that. I actually think that um, the best society is a society that has settled down to build some institutions, to build on the knowledge of our ancestors uh, toward Mm -hmm. a progressive ideology, and to kind of venerate those institutions so that we can move forward on Mm -hmm. them and build on top of them. That's my position. It is not intuitive to me that the outcome of that has to be industrial forms of farming. Mm -hmm. It's not intuitive to Mm -hmm. me that factory farming and a kind of mass production of farming, not not small farmers, um, but a kind of massive scale uh, um, using industrial uh, practices along the lines of mechanized farming Mm -hmm. with pesticides, et cetera, has to be the outcome. Mm -hmm. It's certainly a direction that we took, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, I don't think that it's necessary to do that. And I think increasingly our technologies um, are making those things outdated, especially as we recognize that they're not necessarily good for us. They might be harmful to us. And so my point of view is that if we come up with a better way of doing things, let's not sit around and uh, hold on (laughs) to Mm. um, bad practices simply because we're used to them. We have better practices. I think in in, um, lab-grown meat is one of them. Let's do that. And and in fact, I think that um, in general, my observation about our society is that our lines of ethics actually lag behind our uh, technological development. Totally. So I'm not in the camp that says w- human beings will suddenly, somehow come to a reckoning that, um, that uh, we should treat non-human animal, animals more equitably. I actually think that the technology will progress mm-hmm. to the point mm-hmm. where um, we get used to the idea of not having to slaughter or kill or uh, treat um, maliciously um, non-human animals. And after that technological product and the technological uh, availability of that product um, becomes mainstream, we'll mm-hmm. look back on the practices that we have uh, been um, been uh, doing and look with with horror, some mm-hmm. somehow I think uh, you know the, the way that we look at like the the Roman gladiators, right? With, yeah. with horror. Yes, totally. Uh, it's hard to keep up with you, Deb. <laughs> You're so so erudite, and it's so easy for you to convey this. I'm sure being a professor <laughs> also helps. Uh, uh, I don't know my students would agree with you, but I'll take it. Whatever, they're wrong. Um, so, in terms of people choosing to your prediction that people will choose to eat something like lab-grown meat because it outpaces availability of slaughtered Mm -hmm. meat. Don't you think also that has something to do with if corners can be cut, costs can be cut, Mm -hmm. 
people will follow the savings also. Oh, absolutely. I think that there's, uh, in general, marketing shows that there's three reasons why people buy. Um, it is price point, um, uh, availability, and familiarity, taste, yes, etc. Yes, right. Um, right now, you know, I, uh, my partner and I were looking at the cost of um, lab-grown salmon this mm-hmm. morning. I think it's $400 a pound. Right? Is it accessible to us uh, right um, now? We could get it? Uh, it's... I believe currently at the point where Upside Foods, which has been approved by the FDA mm-hmm. and is now moving toward commercial sales, um, is selling to top-end restaurants. So, for example, wow. the San Francisco uh, um, famous restaurant, uh, Atelier Kren, yes. owned by the restaurateur and, and celebrity chef, uh, Dominique Kren, yeah. um, will be selling um, lab-grown meat <gasps> wow. at the price point, I think, of $720, <sighs> which is the cost of her um, tasting menu. Wow. Um, on that menu. Now, $400 for salmon or $720 for a tasting menu is a very high price point. Um, but let's look at actually the logic and maybe the marketing projection of why you would start off with that kind of mm-hmm. price point. Now, mm-hmm. first of all, you have to calculate in things like research and development costs and the uh, ability to actually produce technologically this kind of product, which mm-hmm. at this time is certainly nowhere close to the scale yeah. of something like slaughtered meat. You also, as you mentioned earlier, have the uh, factor of government subsidies. Mm-hmm. None of us are paying what it actually costs to eat meat. We mm-hmm. are paying uh, a cost for a product that is heavily subsidized mm-hmm. um, by the United States government. So so that we can pay as little as we pay for it. Right. Um, that is not the case currently with a lab-grown meat. But notwithstanding, $400 is an unreasonable cost and certainly inaccessible to the majority of Americans um, for, for salmon. So there's a couple of things that need to happen. First of all, you have to get the research and development costs um, scaled to the kinds of price points that allow mm-hmm. this product to be uh, available. You have to be able to scale it up. Certainly, I think the technology, by all accounts, if you look at the general trends toward technologies, technologies tend to get cheaper over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no doubt that this will happen as well. That uh, When you have a, a, a market, when you have consumers, when you have the ability to scale up, the price per unit will get lower and yeah. the technology will get better. Yeah. So it's not there yet. My hope is that it, it will get there. And if I am Upside Foods, or if I am Wild Type, uh, Upside Foods is going to be selling to uh, Atelier Kren. Um, Wild Type has uh, envisioned opening up its own uh, sushi-grade salmon mm-hmm. um, restaurant in San Francisco. If I am those purveyors, if I am those technologists, um, I also have to contend with what I call the ick factor. Yeah. It's a scientific term that means... Um, <laughs> Uh, people aren't sure whether they want to eat meat grown in a lab. Isn't that so funny? Though? Isn't that well, ironic? I mean, none of us like think twice about drinking Coke Zero or eating Doritos. We don't say, "Well, that was done in a lab, right?" But, right. But when it comes, but thinking to about how grotesque product, the the real thing is, right? yeah. Look, if you buy a piece of meat, um, you have to treat it like a toxic object in your kitchen because mm-hmm. it will have salmonella and mm-hmm. E. coli and gut bacteria and feces all over it. Um, if you buy a piece of meat, they put it usually in a different bag than your apples, etc. Lab-grown meat is uh, meat. It is identical to meat. It is cellularly the same product as meat, but it does not have any of those problems. You can uh, it is clean. You can lick it, right? Uh, you can lick it um, <laughs> when, when but it's, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that consumer patterns don't think about these things logically. They mm-hmm, think this is mm-hmm. a new object of Frankenfood. Um, and so if I am Upside Foods, or if I am Wild Type, what do I want to do? I want to sell this as a high-end product, right? I mm-hmm. want to market this as something 
deeply desirable that only the elite can access. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what Calvin Klein used to do, right? right? This yes. is what any kind of haute couture or any form of product that uh, envisions itself as wanting to develop desirability will do. It's they designer. Will yeah. They, they will market it as something that only the elites can have. Mm-hmm. And then the masses tend to follow. Um, I, I don't mean to be pejorative in this, yeah. but, but it's a, a commonly known marketing technique. And so if I am these um, producers, if I, if I own these businesses, I think it's a really strong strategy, not starting at, at the kind of mass consumption, but really marketing this as like a high quality, mm-hmm. um, desirable kind of curiosity. Well, you already called it clean meat. I mean, when we were emailing and you put it in quotes, mm-hmm. but it's calling it that. Mm-hmm matters in terms of its valuation. Sure, absolutely. And I want to just acknowledge and credit uh, Paul Shapiro, who um, uses that term specifically uh, in his book, Clean Mm. Meat, and Mm -hmm. that is from which I draw the term. There have been a couple of different suggestions about how to term it. Lab-grown meat, I think, carries a lot of concerns about frankenfood. It sounds like Um, Frankenstein. Right. Uh, Some people have talked about cultured meat. Um, the idea huh. of growing uh, something in a culture, of course, it also carries the idea of high culture or something that's oh, fancy. Yes. Um, I like the idea of clean meat. It mm-hmm. makes a clear comparison um, that I think uh, draws people's attention, not just to a distinction, but also to the, the, to the dirtiness of yeah. the food system by which we uh, can access and consume um, slaughtered meat. Right. So I like the term. I do too. At least from this, from this point in time, I do like that mm-hmm. term. Um, I think about the people whose jobs will be lost, which is certainly mm-hmm. not reason enough to continue to keep ranching. Okay, like I acknowledge that. That is not a good enough reason to keep it. But there will be jobs lost uh, if we move in that direction, mm-hmm. and I, I honestly hope we do. This leads me to start thinking about how my job will almost mm-hmm. certainly be lost mm-hmm. because of AI and mm-hmm. things like BARD and ChatGPT. Um and that's when I first heard you speak. That was a lot of what you talked mm-hmm. about. With ranchers losing jobs, with um, slaughterhouse jobs being lost, and then all of the desk jobs that go along with administering those kinds of giant businesses. Um, I don't even know actually what my question is. More just could you riff on the yeah. on talking about artificial intelligence? I know you're not an expert mm-hmm. in that, but you have a lot of thoughts about the good mm-hmm. of artificial intelligence. Well, let me just start off with talking about job loss in this particular arena, because in general, um, I do have fears about AI and job loss. And let's be clear, um, AI or artificial intelligence is not new. Uh, AI mm. has been around since you know at least mid-century. And the first socio-technical systems or automated intelligence systems um, were not automated intelligence systems in what's considered to be white collar work. It was automated intelligent systems in the context of blue collar work and in particular in mining. And uh, that um, process has uh, escalated to the point where white collar work and some genuine forms of what I consider to be important creativity um, are now being challenged. Mm -hmm. And I want to draw that distinction um, between uh, automation that takes away difficult 
oftentimes brutal, oftentimes mm. backbreaking dangerous. labor, mm-hmm. dangerous labor, and automated work that uh, diminishes the possibility for creativity. I would acknowledge hmm. some personal bias here and some positionality. I am myself a white collar worker, and perhaps there is some creativity to mining that I'm just not familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I do think about the technological interventions that have transformed our social fabric in terms of limiting dangerous and backbreaking labor. And to me, those things uh, seem fundamentally different than um, automations that are Mm -hmm. going to be uh, uh, eliminating or extinguishing creativity. Mm -hmm. I don't think Mm -hmm. that what the Screen Actor Guild uh, is currently striking over alongside with the Writers Guild in Hollywood um, is the same kind of demonstration that mm-hmm. the miners were upset about when mm-hmm. uh, when automation came um, to mitigate some of that kind of uh, labor. Mm-hmm. But I might be ignorant uh, on this. Now, if I, I do want to make sure to address what I think is a more important question for our topic today, mm-hmm. which is the question of labor in the context of um, of uh, meat production. Mm-hmm. Um, Unlike white collar work, where you're talking about in general, I think, uh, creative people who have taken a lot of time to invest in certain forms of education and development and iteration to become that creative, um, and who are in general, I think, getting well paid, Mm -hmm. or maybe uh, Mm -hmm. uh, adequately paid to Mm -hmm. do so, Um, the majority of labor in the context of slaughterhouses is done by undocumented workers, Mm -hmm. typically black Mm -hmm. and brown, who are put in excruciating, difficult, uh, backbreaking, and incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. uh, labor positions in slaughterhouses. I think the statistic is something like um, 10 people a day in the United States get... uh, um, like horribly uh, maimed or maimed. anything? Yeah. Yeah, in the context of slaughterhouses. Wow. Hundreds of people die a year in the context yeah. of slaughterhouses at least. Um, and there are very uh, limited possibilities for slaughterhouse workers to do anything about it because they're undocumented. undocumented. Yep. Right. Um, so this is a deeply, I think, pernicious and predatory environment. I do not think that ranchers, small farms, are actually going to be deeply uh, hit or erased by lab-grown meat. Mm. There will always be a place, I believe, for people who create uh, small-farmed, thoughtful um, meat production opportunities Mm -hmm. for consumption. People who want to consume grass-fed, high-price point, real meat Mm -hmm. will always be there. And there will be people who will uh, be around to meet that need. Where I think that lab-grown meat will actually have an important intervention and and stake um, is in industrial slaughter. Mm -hmm. Now, industrial slaughter and the jobs around industrial slaughter, as I've talked about, are very different jobs than ranchers who are uh, raising cattle, oftentimes with love and thought and knowledge Mm -hmm. and expertise. Problem solving. And deep family history. Mm -hmm. Those are two separate things. So let's Mm -hmm. not conflate Mm -hmm. small family farming, which is the small minority of production in Southern California Mm -hmm. and the United States with industrial farming. Okay. Those two things are separate. Um, Now, I will also say that the largest investors in uh, lab-grown meat are meat-producing companies. Mm. Tyson Mm -hmm. is heavily Mm -hmm. invested in lab-grown meat. Why? Um, Because they know where the wind is going. Yeah, and they would like to have a stake in that. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So I don't think that the desk jobs at Tyson are going to be changing <laughs> because um, the uh, eradication or the diminishment of uh, factory farming. Mm. I'm not sure that that's the case. Where I, I hope that we see some change is in the labor practices in slaughterhouses, which I think anybody who's socially thoughtful mm-hmm. and who's interested in fair labor and who's interested in human rights would want to see change. Yes. Yes. That's a good distinction. Can you clarify what, I should have done this at the beginning, what lab-grown meat is? Yeah, absolutely. So lab-grown meat takes cells uh, from a real animal, um, and then it develops those cells in the context of a lab using technological means to stretch those fibers to, you know, um, if you, if your listeners are familiar with muscle development, if you mm-hmm. work out, then you know that the way to create muscle is to stretch and mm-hmm. to put stress, it. Put stress yeah, mm-hmm. on that muscle. And that muscle, uh, once stressed, will develop more fibers. Mm-hmm. This is essentially what they're doing in a lab. They're taking real cells from a real animal, then muscle cells uh, adjacent to um, or connected to. Uh, the exact kind of muscle that we would want to eat and they're developing that muscle for our consumption the mm. same way that a animal uh, non-human animal would the difference is in the bioreactor and a non-human animal is a bioreactor right mm. you feed that non-human animal uh food um and they uh create muscle they walk around they stress their muscle mm-hmm. and then you have to kill that non-human animal in other words you have to destroy the bioreactor in order to harvest the protein i don't like using these terms necessarily because i think that they limit our um uh empathic imagination yeah. when i use terms like bioreactor but uh, scientifically this is what's happening yeah. you can actually yeah. they've discovered do this outside of the uh non-human animal bioreactor, mm. you can create those conditions. You can feed those cells in a lab mm. and then you can harvest those cells. So the distinction on a molecular level between lab grown meat and uh, slaughtered meat is, uh, is um, that, you know, th- there is no distinction. They're identical. Mm. Mm-hmm. The difference is where the process is happening and the um, unnecessary dimension of having to actually slaughter an animal right. to do it. So uh, does flavor then come from the distinction of the different kinds of cells? You know, because chicken and beef, and maybe this is outside your Mm -hmm. realm of understanding, but chicken and beef taste different. Sure. They're different kinds of cells. So it's just from the cellular, the structure of the cell. Sure. They're different kinds of bioreactors. They're different kinds of cells. And do they then grow into like slabs or do they grow into muscle? Like what we picture as a muscle? How do these cells grow? They can grow into whatever kind of format you compel them to grow into, right? Yeah. I mean, in our bodies, muscles don't just kind of like grow in whatever direction. That's true. They, they grow in the kind of container and yes. area and okay. structures that we provide uh, them for. And of course, um, cells them themselves create and have and retain a kind of uh, memory a about knowledge. how to yes. grow, right? So that's, that's built into the cell's differentiation process when it you know, goes into what kind of dimension of cell it's going to be. Uh, All of these things are possible in a lab. And I should say that the um, lab grown or clean meat industry is on a technological level um, consistent with what will, I believe, also happen in terms of lab grown leather. Um, Oh, I didn't even think about that. Lab grown silk. Uh, all of yeah. these things are possible. And as I said, technologically, the, the price of technology over time drives down yeah. the cost of the product. Right. Um, or I'm sorry, the scale of the technology over time drives down the cost of the product. Yes. Like we were talking before about there are flights to Barcelona right now for $450. I mean, if you were to scale that to inflation in 1968, mm-hmm. 
this would be a huge, huge price tag to fly right. from SFO to Barcelona, right. but but the techno- technology has grown such that mm-hmm. the price comes down. Right. That's exciting. That's I hope so. really exciting. And the leather and silk thing, I did not even think about that. That, yeah, so many people, uh, myself, I should talk about myself. I just forget that leather is in the same camp as the steaks mm-hmm. that we eat. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, this is so phenomenal. And I, I wonder... Professionally speaking, are you going to try to move more into that direction academically? Oh, man. You know, I did an interview of my show with um, Paul Shapiro, the author mm. uh, I mentioned earlier. And I said in the first few minutes of that interview, I said, you know, I read your book. And um, after I read that book, uh, for the first time, I said, I want to quit my job and I want to work on this. Oh, so lovely. I would, this is something that I'm, I'm again, deeply passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um there are programs right now developing at places like UC Davis, UC Berkeley, uh, um, around the country and internationally focused on, you know, um, uh, food chemistry, um, on um, uh, food and and molecular science Mm -hmm. that are training the next generation of thinkers and technologists uh, to be able to, I think, um, accomplish these mm-hmm. kinds of technological um, tasks. I don't come from a background in food technology, mm. uh, but I deeply believe in the mission yeah. of this kind of technology. Uh, mm. And I deeply be- believe in the kind of ethos uh, and the w- vision of a world, a better world, a good yeah. world, that these kinds of technologies will develop. Um, right now, you know, my uh, professional capacity allows me to talk passionately about this, Mm -hmm. um, to talk to as many people as will listen Hmm. um, about these interests. And maybe what I do is I inspire a couple of people to check it out, or maybe I inspire an undergraduate who's trying to declare a major to think about this major. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would consider any small difference I make um, something that I've done in the service of this. Uh, If you know, uh, many of these food companies are in Berkeley, California, yeah, which is where right. we're both sitting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm always interested in thinking about what I could do to move this passion forward and how I can use my skills and my expertise and my platform to uh, develop this uh, idea. And to, you know, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, um, before we can build any technology, we first have to imagine it. Yeah. So if what I do, uh, and if all I do is help people to imagine this, mm-hmm. then I hope that I could say that I've had some role in building it. Yes, for sure. Okay. Tell listeners about your podcast. What's sure. it called? How do they find it? Sure. So uh, my podcast is called Technically Human. It is a podcast about ethics and technology where I try to convene a diverse set of perspectives uh, and people with different backgrounds um, in a conversation that really constellates the diversity and the um, different ways and of thinking and the different kinds of um of technologies that are at stake when we talk about ethics and technology. And what I do is I talk to uh, people in industry, I talk to academics, I talk to writers, I talk to critics, mm-hmm. um, and I talk to leaders in the tech section uh, sector. And we talk about the relationship between humans and the technologies we create and how we can uh, build a better world with those technologies or think about those technologies in relationship to our idea of a better world, um, a world uh, that we hope our technologies will help us bring us closer to one that better represents the diversity of human values. Yeah, fantastic mission. Okay, last thing I always ask is, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you eat, what would you drink, and who would you be with? And this is a happy thing, a celebratory thing, not a sad thing. Sure. Uh, 
Well, you know, and earlier in our conversation, I mentioned that food is many different things. It's politics. It is um, pleasure. Um, it's love and it's memory. And mm-hmm. so I think that many of us have palates deeply formed by the moments where we have shared a piece of food with a loved one or we have a memory um, that uh, is um, pivoted around a piece of food that brought us closer to love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple of different things that you know my family uh, brings with it from the different parts of the world that we are from um, that I recall as parts of my childhood where uh, we all gathered around together with love to mm-hmm. uh, eat and to bond and to break bread together. Um, of those, of those <laughs> things, uh, there's a multitude of them, but you know, deeply nestled um, in, <laughs> in my memory uh, are some of the recipes that my mom made mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Um, they're nothing fancy. They're nothing yeah. special. They also they often involve uh, a lot of ketchup on top of them <laughs> because my mother really loved ketchup. So as a sauce, any yeah, she loved it. it. Like, did she treat it as a sauce? Uh, as it a, is a as sauce. A sauce as a condiment, as a, as a uh, side dish, <laughs> all of the above. So probably something attached to memory. And mm. I would, uh, my family and I are very close. Uh, I would share with them. Um, and uh, use the opportunity to gather around uh, with food and to break bread together to talk about the things that really matter to us. Because after all, I think um, uh, food is about bringing people together around a table um, for love and for pleasure Mm -hmm. and uh, for connection. Um, And so when food can do that, then I think that it has performed uh, a remarkable act of, Mm -hmm. of, uh, of connectivity. Yeah, it is pretty magic Mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. Thank you, Deb, so much. Oh, pleasure, Jamie. Thanks so much for hosting me. Thank you very much for your thoughtful questions and for the (laughs) delightful conversation. Did I do, did I hang okay? Oh yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's a great conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Sure. That wraps up another episode of the Consumed Podcast. If you like what you've heard here, please like and leave a review. It really does help. And if you want more information about any of the guests on Consumed, you can find a page of notes for each episode at letsgetconsumed.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for the Consumed newsletter and contact info for me in case you have comments, compliments, questions, or suggestions for people you think should be on the show. I'm Jamie Lewis. Thanks, as always, for listening.